When you need to restore flow in an ischemic limb, there's no time to lose. You need the Pounce Thrombectomy System. The Pounce System from Sermonics is a purpose-built percutaneous device for removing thrombus and embolus in the peripheral vasculature. No capital equipment or aspiration needed. Just grab, go, and restore flow. It's simple. With the Pounce System, you place the basket wire distal to the clot, place the collection funnel proximal to the clot, pull back to collect the clot in the funnel, and retract the system through your guide sheath. The secret sauce? The Pounce Funnel is designed to macerate and dehydrate the clot, allowing you to remove even large amounts of material through a 7-front sheath. Visit PounceSystem.com to learn how physicians have used the device to accelerate on-table flow restoration while reducing use of thrombolytics. Pounce Thrombectomy. Strike quickly to capture and remove clot. This week on the Backtable Podcast. Ultrasound is uniquely placed to become a phenomenal tool if you invest the time to care for it, to see it through, and to become an asset to your tech in the sense of improving feedback, coming back and looking at things with them. I'll tell you one of the things I enjoy the most is going to the scanner when they're scanning. Because again, I come from the world where I scan myself, so... I always say, whenever you have a weird thing on the scanner, don't get the patient off the table. I want to go in the room and I want to scan with you. I, I may just even push you and grab this thing and you do it myself to understand. But then both together, we say, oh, this is what that was. And then I even close the circle of communication because I'll do an angiogram and I'll come back next week and I'm like, hey, come and see the angio of that patient that we scanned that we were all lost. This is what was happening. Or maybe that's what prompts a more scientific reasoning for saying, hey, I actually need a CT scan. Because this looks like maybe a thrombose popliteal aneurysm that, you know, in, in a study that's not so well done, you may not get all that. But when you have the time and you look at the contour and you look at it, it just gives you so much information. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Boston Scientific's Alluvia drug-eluting peripheral stent is a purpose-built stent platform with a polymer specifically designed to treat SFA disease. In two head-to-head trials, Alluvia demonstrated superior clinical outcomes compared to other therapies and is setting a new standard of care in SFA stenting. To learn more about how Alluvia can help you take the fight to PAD, visit bostonscientific.com forward slash Alluvia. That's E-L-U-V-I-A from Boston Scientific. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast. I am your host, Jill Somerset, and this is a multi-part series of advanced arterial duplex ultrasound, including venous duplex in another talk that we're going to give, but I have the distinct pleasure of Dr. Miguel Montero Baker joining us today to talk about the emerging techniques and the use of advanced vascular ultrasound and no-option CLTI patients. Welcome, Dr. Miguel Montero Baker. I am so happy to have you join me in this podcast. Good morning, Jill. It's a true honor to be here. I've obviously always been a fan of your work. And we've collaborated in many different uh, ways in many different countries. So it's now a pleasure to be here helping with this podcast of uh, such a relevant topic that you've chosen for today. So I'm excited about this. Excellent. And I have 
been so honored to be actually scrubbing cases with you outside of the U.S. Uh, you are a renowned vascular surgeon, highly skilled operator. Can you share with us your journey as a vascular surgeon and your training and what got you to this point in your career? I did my first of probably three training paradigms in Costa Rica. My dad's from Costa Rica. My mom's American and I grew up in Costa Rica. And I did uh, not only medical school, but vascular surgery there. And at the time, we were obviously getting a lot of consults from patients with foot and foot-related complications, secondary to primarily diabetes. And I remember there being at times up to five major amputations in, in just one week at my program. And so very early on, I felt a sense of defeat that we were really not helping these people. And I also grew up in a family. My father is a PMNR, physical medicine and rehab physician, and he's also in a wheelchair. So he's a person who has had a disability all his life. But my dad went on to lead the World Health Organization in regards to matters of disability issues worldwide in uh, third world countries. So he showed me very early on that independent living was a crucial for humans and that we all deserve that shot at getting ourselves around through the world, be that with technical aids or not, and certainly understanding the importance of limb preservation in order to get there. I very quickly got myself into a mode of, I'm not going to get the education that I need, not with that minimizing how important and how amazing the education that I had in Costa Rica was, because my open surgical technique up to today was something I learned there. But it was every, very obvious that I needed to add something else. And so I went to different meetings in the world. And probably the first one that inspired me was, I remember back in the early 2000s, I went to a TCT in Washington. That's a big cardiology meeting dedicated to transcatheter therapeutics. And I remember seeing this German guy talking about tibial angioplasty. And this was just you know, the beginning of it, it was the first few articles coming out about it. And, and the name of this guy is Dirk Scheinert. And Dirk, uh, till today, he's the chair of, of endovascular therapies and, and limb preservation therapies in the Herzentrum in Leipzig in Germany. And I, uh, you know, I just ran after that man like a bat out of hell after he gave his talk. Because, you know, they disappear, right? These guys get off the podium and you never see them again. So uh, I just really went after him, tackled him. And unfortunately, you know, I couldn't talk to him there, but then later on, he did kind of find me and, and, and we had a chance to talk a little bit, but all to say, he said, you know, if you really want to do this, and if you really think that you could survive in Leipzig, cause, uh, let me tell you, if you're a Costa Rican, you love, uh, the warm weather, Leipzig is probably not the place where you're going to find your happy <laughs> self. But, you know, despite the adversity of a different language, despite the adversity of a very tough crowd, and despite the adversity of a horrible weather, I actually had a beautiful three years of fellowship after I finished my residency up there in Leipzig. And I really did a lot of work in, in endovascular therapies. They even offered me a job at the end of my training to stay there. But by then, the fellowship, the scholarship that I had gotten from the German government required me to go back to Costa Rica and build a limb salvage practice. And so that's what I did for a couple more years. And then one thing led to the other and through some scientific collaborations, 
as well as opportunity and, and some uh, industry connections. I was able to connect with a lot of people in the US and I was then blessed to be able to come in at a kind of redo training, if you may, maybe not redo, but polish whatever I had been doing for many years in a program in the University of Arizona led by Joe Mills in very intimate collaboration with David Armstrong. And those guys are a toe and flow master team that have really published uh, a lot of disruptive material in, in the limb salvage era. And so it was really an inspiration about, you know, I, I always say I was a great operator when I came from Germany, but after I worked with Joe for many years and that group, I feel I became a really good doctor when it comes to seeing these patients, because obviously it's not about crossing the lesion, right? It's about treating the patient holistically and what they need and in their environment. And again, you know, putting also the, the weight of how complex the subgroup of patients is, how sick and frail they are, how poor their family networks can be. It really is a challenge to put all these things together in a holistic way and come up with the best approach for these patients. And so that led me to Baylor College of Medicine in Houston for the same purpose. And then that led me in a short tenure to the chief at the Methodist organization. And now currently very happy to say that I'm embarking in a solo project that's hopefully going to create a holistic and multidisciplinary Taj Mahal, if you may, for, for limb preservation strategy. So that's my uh, 60,000 foot view of, of where Miguel started and where Miguel is right now. And to be continued, because uh, if you ask me in three or six months, I may be off to another project. People always say, man, we have a hard time keeping up with what you're up to. And, uh, and I guess that's really a definition of what I am. I am very entrepreneur. I try to keep my mind busy with new projects. And I do change constantly in the spirit of becoming a better person and certainly a better doctor for my patients. Well, thank you for sharing your journey. I actually love to hear about it. And you can see the passion, uh, certainly. And it's nice to hear about your your family and what drives you. And I think there's a lot to be said for the change and the passion that we are seeking and what makes us all happy. So with that, we were having dinner at one time, I think we were in San Francisco at a cook dinner, and you talked about your time in Germany and your building of skills with ultrasound. And of course, because I do ultrasound, <laughs> it caught my attention. So share with that a little bit. How, how was that for you, learning ultrasound in a deeper way to hone in your skills? So I remember the, the chairman, again, Dr. Scheiner, having a conversation with him because the way that the DAAD, and that's the German Academic Exchange Program, works is depending on what you're going to do, I'll give you a, a scope. Uh, you may be there to do research in a lab, or you may be all the way up in the part where you're going to be taking care of patients and you need your medical degree to be approved. Well, the German government naturally has different expectations for your language proficiency. If you're going to be a bit of a lab rat, then they may just require a very low level of, of German proficiency. If you're going to be taking care of patients and you know writing notes and, and discussing clinical plans, then you have to have a high proficiency of German. And so the program would secure, well, they couldn't secure, but they would certainly help as much to get you to that point where you could pass the proficiency tests. And 
So what they demanded of me based on the fact that I knew zero German going into this program was that I needed six months of intensive course. And that means that I could not take care of a patient. And certainly I couldn't scrub unless I had that kind of check. And so for six months, I would go to my language school from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. And it was, you know, an intense morning and early afternoon of, of just German, German, German. And talking to my mentor there uh, a couple of times, I, I brought up that I was, despite how intense that was, I would still feel that I would have time on my hands to do a little bit of extra work. And I came to him thinking that maybe I should do a research or maybe I should publish something or maybe I can, I don't know, do some data mining. And, you know, he walked me through some options of things that he thought. He said, well, how are your ultrasound skills? And I said, well, in my country, we don't do ultrasounds. In our country, it's the radiologists that do the ultrasounds and we just get the reads. And then he, he said, well, what do you think about that? How, how useful was that in your practice? And I said, that's probably, uh, you know, one out of 10, how useful is ultrasound in your practice? And I said, two. And uh, he, in a very visionary way, because I don't even think that today, if I would ask Dirk, how important ultrasound is in his practice. I don't think he'd, he'd put it up to, you know, uh, more than five out of 10, if anything, but visionary way for him and, and also eye-opening for me because the way that we finally decided to go about that, he wanted me to work with a tech that did all the ultrasounds for them and that I would just oversee the tech doing ultrasounds. Well, little did I know that this tech was just could just speak German. And so for the foreseeable six months, I would go to class and listen to German all afternoon. Then I'd get on my bike and I'd like ride across town and get on a train and go all the way to the hospital. And then this lady who, by the way, was, she wasn't the sweetest person in the world. She was, she was very dry, at least at the beginning. I broke her down, but yeah, she would only speak in German and it was like very staccato. And at the time, again, a blessing in disguise, there was a tech that had quit or was on maternity leave, I think. And then the other tech was alone. So there was two ultrasound machines and only one tech. And so for like a couple of months, I mean, I bought books, I read everything I could about ultrasound. I came and I'm trying to understand the technical aspect, but I'm trying to understand German. And it was really awkward. But anyway, it worked because it was an immersive period, right? Of, of not only understanding, but then the thing is that our language was ultrasound which I know you can understand, right? Like, what do you talk to each other? Oh, we spoke ultrasound. <laughs> because really, you know, it's numbers and triphasic is triphasic, right? Biphasic is biphasic, right? Or biphasic. So we talked ultrasound all day. And yeah, of course, at one point, I just ventured into the other machine and started ultrasounding. And then we became super besties because I was offloading her a lot from the work and I was doing really good quality ultrasounds and she would like on the fly would teach me and help me and everything. And so then I even took a, a test and I got a title for it. So I got like an ultrasound, a specialty, a subspecialty on a fell. It was like an, a peripheral ultrasound fellowship thing that they had. And I passed that test as a board. And then I did my interventional boards, which I passed in Germany too. And so I ended up with two titles, which I never thought I was going to do, but it was really game-changing because it was the beginning of a beautiful story that still today is developing. 
Well, I think it's fantastic. A lot of physicians may not have that opportunity to really jump in with not knowing German and ultrasound, but really bringing in your skills is pretty amazing. I mean, I watch you scan together and obviously you're pretty phenomenal. I want to share with the audience how we met which is kind of a funny story. And I'm kind of honored to share it because it really was a very simple Twitter post about pedal acceleration time and pedal duplex. And you chimed in and you said, come teach us at Hendelot. And I accepted and gosh, the next thing I knew, I was in Mexico City <laughs> presenting <laughs> on PAT, like pretty extraordinary for just a vascular tech like myself. And I just want to thank you for opening up the door and inviting me into to your world. And it's been really, really amazing to connect with the Latin America people who really have embraced pedal duplex and PAT. So thank you. Well, I, yeah, I I wouldn't be able to take any ownership on that. It was very, I'd say here's my talent. My talent is that I can scope talented people and that I understand people that are on a, on a very strong trajectory up. And when there's scientific knowledge combined with the right amount of charisma, I find that very incredibly attractive in an individual and a scientist. And for me, those are the people that I want to surround myself with. And Handelot, you mentioned briefly, it's this large digital platform for education that we've been working in Latin America for many years. And now it's really almost globally recognized specifically for Spanish-speaking countries. Now Spain has become also a big target for us, but we just got on the jail plane. It wasn't the other way around. And it's been great to just see how amazing you have been able to develop. And I'm sure this is just the beginning of this much more robust, beautiful story that is still to be written, but it's been for sure uh, a great pleasure. And you have touched many people with what you do. I think right now, how many years ago was that, that you first came? Was it 2019, I believe. I don't think there's a Mexican course that doesn't have you as a speaker now. Like, yeah, now it's to the point where it's abusive, I think, because you bring such joy and such passion to what you do that it, again, it, it's just very enticing for people to see somebody that's, you know, that believes in something and, and that the data supports it, right? I mean, you don't only talk the talk, but you can walk the walk. And so that's been really great to see. And we can't wait to work with you more throughout the next few years. Yes, well, thank you so much. So we're here to talk about advanced vascular ultrasound. And so I wanna really dive into, first of all, how much do you rely on vascular ultrasound for your interventions in planning for CLTI patients? In the planning, I'd say it's probably the most powerful tool that we have in the in the workup phase. It allows us to get a pretty good understanding of what the anatomy that we're dealing with is. It not only allows us to almost determine the level of the disease, but it's also one that determines the physiologic condition of the end distal organ perfusion, all the way to the very small vessels of the foot, as we have endeavored now more so in intimate scanning of the uh, vessels below the ankle. But it also is a huge complement to anybody doing interventions because it also adds a lot of knowledge, for example, on a important part, which is understanding what conduit you have to work with. So you don't only get an arterial scan, but you could get a venous scan and have a very clear understanding of, do you have a saphenous vein that you can work with? Because 
in a very aggressive, extensive disease pattern, you may opt for a bypass first approach and not necessarily always an endo approach. It may also help you determine, is this only femoropopliteal or infrapopliteal disease? Or is this more proximal disease? And am I dealing with some aortoiliac disease, which may entail some more unique imaging, especially in the, in the more obese patients? But, you know, skinny patients, you could still scan incredibly well into the aortoiliac system. But also, it can plan to the tools. And, you know, based on whatever the anatomy of the lesion that you're looking at is, it can determine what tools you're going to have. And so you can make sure that ahead of a certain case, you have this atherectomy device, or you're going to have this sort of crossing tool, or you're going to have this sort of imaging thing that's going to help you based on all that. So I think it just sets you up in the best way possible to succeed in the next phase of care. So diagnosis, you know, is a first step in the right direction for the uh, overall care of a patient. As you know, I'm a huge advocate, and I'm not shy about it, that I really believe in an advanced arterial duplex ultrasound in great detail. But there are many institutions that just rely on PBR, or ABI, or TBIs, and they maybe don't have the robust, you know, vascular lab to give them a full duplex. So how do we get there? How do we push for advanced ultrasound to better plan for your cases to give more options? Well, I think there are reasons that are maybe scientifically based, and then there are other reasons that may not necessarily be related to science. So one of the main components for any advanced imaging is that reimbursement may be suitable and enticing for physicians to add that as part of the workup component. And there are obviously some technical fees that come associated to it that are enticing for practices to engage in more advanced or robust imaging. And on the more scientific side, I, I think we've been a bit lazy to blame human error as the main reason is why we wouldn't or shouldn't trust an ultrasound. And I say lazy because, and, I, and I'm blaming myself here, for example, if you get an ultrasound in my office with the text that I work with closely all the time, I'll trust that blindly. If I get an ultrasound from the hospital in the middle of the night where I don't even know who the tech was, you know, one mental condition the tech was that day or what emotional condition the tech was that day with no oversight from our vascular surgeons and, and just oversight from maybe a cardiothoracic surgeon that's about to retire or is already retired. So it's just like the points of quality are just not there. And so ultrasound is uniquely placed to become a phenomenal tool if you invest the time to care for it, to see it through and to become an asset to your tech in the sense of improving feedback, coming back and looking at things with them. I'll tell you one of the things I enjoy the most is going to the scanner when they're scanning. Because again, I come from the world where I scan myself. So I always say, whenever you have a weird thing on the scanner, don't get the patient off the table. I want to go in the room and I want to scan with you. I, I may just even push you and grab this thing and you do it myself to understand. But then both together, we say, oh, this is what that was. And then I even close the circle of communication because I'll do an angiogram and I'll come back next week and I'm like, hey, come and see the angio of that patient that we scanned that we were all lost. This is what was happening. Or maybe that's what prompts the more scientific reasoning for saying, hey, I actually need a CT scan. 
because this looks like maybe a thrombose popliteal aneurysm that, you know, in, in a study that's not so well done, you may not get all that. But when you have the time and you look at the contour and you look at it, it just gives you so much information. Yeah, and I just, I love that. And I want it to happen so much more amongst the the vascular technologists to give us that gift. Because yeah, it's a time investment, but it really it provides so much value. And I think it will help further our relationship with physicians, whether it be IR, IC, vascular surgery. For these CLTI patients, we're all in it together. And I think the more we can get that collaboration, the better. I was lucky enough to work with vascular surgeons for the last 12 years very closely. And it's that same thing. They would come into the room and watch me scan and we would problem solve together and basically plan the case with the patient on the table. And it's really, really powerful. And I think we've got to get more of that. So that is great. I loved your uh, your depressed uh, end of that uh, tone, but it shouldn't be depressed. I think that what we're doing here is what we should be doing. I know that we're uh, going to talk about a little bit towards the end, but let's try to ventilate what's precluding us from making that happen more. Because I think there are some things that we can identify and then we can work as as a group and certainly using the leadership, for example, that you have right now with uh, the Society of Vascular Ultrasonography, those are places where we can initiate change and it's going to take time. But anyway, I'm sure that we can talk a little bit more about what the hurdles are for more implementation and scalability of this. Oh yeah, for sure. We should talk about it now because, you know, for a vascular technologist like myself, there's nowhere else to go. Yes, we can get a credential in the venous and phlebology world. Now we have uh, neuro. Even ECHO has an advanced Credential. And I really think that there should be an advanced credential for CLTI that really hones in our skill in the cath lab and the outpatient setting. But, you know, as you and I have talked about, that needs to come with some form of reimbursement. But it really would provide upward movement for passionate vascular technologists wanting to further their their investment in their career. The question lies on on incentives. What's the incentive? And and we can split it into three. What's the incentive? for the technologists to further themselves? What's the incentive of the physician to further this? And then what's the incentive of the institution? And knowing that there are other areas of subspecialization, that may be a good starting point for understanding. So maybe from the perspective of a technologist, what incentivizes them to go and get a subspecialty in neuro, for example? Is it is there going to be a financial, possibly a financial gain because the jobs in neuro are a little bit better paid? Is that the primary probably reason that stimulates them? Obviously, there's a personal interest, right? And, and I like this. This is what my field, I feel very passionate about it. I think it's a lot of job satisfaction. I mean, yes, we would hope to get more compensation, but it's a job satisfaction. And it's also integrating ourselves, you know, with physicians and other specialists to make us worth, not that we're not worth more, but we want to be a part of the team. Oftentimes, vascular techs are in a dark room just scanning by themselves. They give over the report and they go on to the next patient. And gosh, I love the collaboration. I want to come out and plan the case with you. I want to be in the cath lab with you to help you know, patient outcomes. Yeah. I think that's where we just have to understand how to create that value, right? Because also... I mean, I've been in multiple meetings and I mean, yesterday you and I were texting about this, which is, you know, how many studies should you do in an hour and what's efficient for a practice? So if 
you know, somebody comes and says to the technologist, hey, I need 15 scans a day, then you're asking for a lot, right? I mean, yeah, maybe you will get 15 scans, but they're going to be shitty and they're not going to be great scans. And they're going to just be ticking boxes off, creating some revenue stream. And and at the end of the day, the doctor's going to look at it and he's going to be like, okay, this is useless. So I'm going to have to get a CT scan, right? And that's kind of what perpetuates that problem, I think. It's, okay, we... It's almost like we have to, if you're old enough to understand, we have to control, delete the system and, uh, <laughs> and, and say, hey, we got to create value for the technologists. What does that mean? It means that we're going to have to come to them and, and understand and make them understand that they can be part of a team, that there's a human component of significance to their professionalism, that that professionalism is going to be unique and that it's going to be taken into account for the decision making of that patient. That you're not only going to be part of that phase, but that you're going to be involved in the intraoperative phase. That you're going to help progress the, the procedure. And that you're going to help make sure that that procedure works. And in a surveillance program, is going to, you know, you're going to be a, a critical point of saying, hey, something's going on here. And I need you to, to note it. And so for the physician, it's understanding, listen, you can do these things without radiation and contrast. You know, I mean, it saddens me, but I'm seeing more talks about CO2 angiography now than ever before. Why? Because there's a global problem with contrast, not because it creates renal problems for patients. Like, I mean, come on. It took a financial and logistical problem to make us talk about something when the clinical data supports us not doing it. So we have to go and re-educate doctors to stop saying that ultrasound gives very, you know, wishy-washy information. No. Yes, it does. But, you know, if it's a tech that you never know and you don't put any effort into understanding what they do, then you're ne never going to get there. And then for the facility, I think we have to also make them understand that this is going to be value-based medicine. And we're doing better decision-making for these patients than you could ever. I would take a patient to a common femoral endarterectomy with anything other than a good duplex scan. I don't see the necessity of anything else. I would be very happy if I know that the profunda has a coral reef and the, there's a 90% calcification ridge in the common femoral and everything else looks pristine, I don't need a CTA. I don't need an angiogram for that. What am I going to do with a luminogram? I know exactly what the problem is. I can fix it, right? And so I can take that patient straight to the OR and in a value-based medicine where readmissions and prolonged hospital stays are an, important, are an issue, then it allows us to create the storyline for them. Reimbursement has to be Certainly, the love sprinkled throughout all three processes because, you know, I want to be able to pay the, the tech, the time that they take to do a good study, right? I don't want to rush you through a study, but I want to pay you for your salary. I want to be happy with the reimbursement that comes to my office, and I want to make sure that the hospital understands. So, so it just, it's like we need to create, you know, maybe even modifiers of complexity and say, listen, this is an arterial scan, but it's just not a straightforward one. It's the first CLTI scan on a de novo patient that's had three failed bypasses. That's going to take time. You're going to have shadows of bypasses all over the place. You're going to have scars that are not going to let you see. That's going to be, but if you give me the right information, because that guy's creatinine is 3.1, then I don't have to get a CT scan. I may just go straight to an angiogram or maybe a surgical procedure limited to the common femoral, right? I don't know. But all those things I think need our attention. So we need to be judicious about data acquisition. We need to put these projects on the table. There are projects that, have, that require political torque. There are projects that require scientific torque and then human torque, which is 
people like us continue talking, talking, talking about the same thing. And we should not be appalled about somebody calling us out on Twitter saying ultrasound doesn't work. We should be able to say, yes, it does. And here's the information why, right? Like, you know, we can't take it personal, right? I remember somebody telling me that in politics, if you take it personal, you're never going to be able to convince somebody of otherwise, right? So when you hear somebody, something appalling politically or scientifically, don't be emotional about it, but be rather practical about how can I now in a naive setting, try to explain it to some person and not let it attack me because they're coming from an ignorance standpoint. And that's that's a big, big task for us. But anyway, I, I feel we're just doing small little stepping stones here for, for a bigger you know, solution, hopefully down the line. Yeah, 100%. Well said. And this is why I love to collaborate with you. I love to have these conversations with you because you just ignite the passion that, I mean, I have a lot of passion around this this space, but gosh, it's there's so much potential, I think. And I'm, I'm thrilled to, again, to continue to partner with you to hopefully make advancements in this area. So let's talk about venous arterialization. So you are a highly skilled operator and deeply invested in this work. And I just want to talk about the use of ultrasound in venous arterialization, whether it be the preoperative, you know, we're, this podcast is on emerging use of, of ultrasound in the no option CLTI patient. And you and I have had so many conversations around this. So where do you see, you know, ultrasound really, you know, driving ahead in these no option CLTI patients? Well, we have to first start with the definition of who's, who's that subgroup of patients. And I, for listeners out there, we're we're looking more and more at patients that have extreme below the knee and below the ankle disease associated to extreme patterns of medial artery calcification and that are probably related most likely to chronic diabetes and chronic renal failure and specifically renal failure on dialysis and, and substitution therapies. It creates a, a problem significantly at the cellular and molecular level that's leading to transformation of the vascular, healthy, smooth muscle cells into osteochondrocytic cells, which create nanocrystal deposition, and it creates bone. If you look at histology and you don't tell the uh, pathologist where you're taking from this, they could actually report a fragment of bone. And so in these procedures, it's like, imagine if somebody would just pour cement into the arteries and everything would get clogged up all the way down to the distal arteries and the toes. Those patients naturally are our no option patients. They tend to be a very high global guidelines, Wi-Fi, wound, ischemia, and foot infection classification and are related classically to very high limb loss rates. And so some data from many years ago, probably actually sparked from the days of congenital heart research showed that you could actually oxygenate the capillary through the vein. So if you retroperfuse the capillary, you could actually get some oxygen into the tissue. And that's how the concept of foot, of venous foot arterialization came to fruition, based on some of that knowledge from the past. And then certainly some very audacious researchers have pushed the envelope at a very early stage in their careers many, many years ago to the point that there were books written on this topic by one Latin American physician, Dr. Lengua, who got the chance to actually do a lot of his training and research in France. But that kind of like died in the development of vascular surgery because 
There was other people coming up with bypasses, and there was a lot of research done on arterial arterial reconstructions that worked phenomenally well till today. And so the fact that we didn't understand quite well how to mechanistically do it, and the fact that we didn't understand quite well what was happening at the biological level, it made it kind of go away. And and there's a few different people around the world with very different results that led to confusion. Anaita Das and uh, Vanita Chandra published a meta-analysis a few years ago, and it's spaghetti and meatballs of information. It just doesn't make much sense. And so when initially I, I got involved in this and very interested in this was because I came to Houston and it was just overwhelmed by how many patients had these disease patterns. And I was just not doing anything. I'd be there for four hours trying to open an artery and spin something or crack something. And reality is you know, three weeks later, six weeks later, I'd be occluded again. And the patient would even look worse than what it looked at the beginning. So our interventions in the in a poorly selected patient actually can create more problems than the benefits. And so it was obvious that there was a drastic need for something that was disruptive. And I caught wind that some of our colleagues that I have looked up to for many years in Italy had been doing their first steps in, in arterialization and understanding a lot. We just hopped on a plane and went over there and, and learned. And, and then we started doing this at Baylor with Dr. Mills and Dr. Brian Lipo, a podiatrist who was also very enticed by trying to do something else for these patients. And so we started progressing the technique and understanding the anatomy of the pedal veins and how we could access the veins in, in a better way and how can we study these veins in a better way. So ultrasound has, I mean, has been our, the eyes and ears of, of this in many ways because this procedure requires a lot of knowledge of the venous anatomy. It requires highly technical qualities in the sense that you, you're accessing small veins in the dorsum of the foot or in the bottom of the foot. You're traversing valves up and down. You are trying to reconnect the arterial to the venous system. You are deploying stents. And then you're measuring hemodynamic impacts and even finding retained valves. And the reality is that the ultrasound doesn't only work for the diagnosis by determining who has a profound medial artery calcification pattern, which most of the authors believe it should be diagnosed by x-rays. Well, you and I, Jill, are, are on the quest to try to prove that ultrasound is the best way to determine excessive calcium so that you're prepared that possibly this is a case that may be an arterialization from the get-go. And so, again, being the reflex human nature of understanding the disease and the tech knowing what to provide, then we immediately, when we have a high medial artery uh, burden of calcification, then we actually scan the veins of the foot because if there's going to be an arterialization, then we want to know what the diameter of the lateral plantar vein is. We want to know where the valves are, how to get to connect the valves, where to possibly access the vest. Do you use the superficial to deep perforating vein? Do we use just a straight deep axis. And then more importantly than all that is once you do it, you can get an immediate hemodynamic evaluation by measuring Doppler waveforms at the edge of the distal stent in the lateral plantar vein. And you can add, you know, some of the knowledge that we have from the work you've done on the arterial side with pedal acceleration time and add data sprinkles of, of again, uh, I call it love sprinkles at the end to just make everything work together. Again, we need to vet that. I mean, we're in the process of understanding how to interpret the pedal acceleration time on a lateral plantar vein that's been recently arterialized. 
but those are those are elements that have to you know we're determining flow volumes we're determining pedal acceleration time we're determining doppler waveforms and how the recruitment of distal and more distal venous segments happens throughout time by dilation and inversion of valves and or recruitment of hibernating arterial vessels by microfistulate you know all that is is an ongoing project but again back to your question the ultrasound becomes essential you can diagnose you can determine the validity of the procedure you can say it's adequate for nurturization you can help it in the axis you can help it in crossing and you can determine if it worked at the very beginning and use those parameters as the baseline for your surveillance as a patient comes in at week one, two, three, and four, because they do require a lot of hand-holding at the beginning of these patients. So again, areas where we need bright minds to ignite and to help because, you know, there's just so much we can do with a, you know, 24 hours in a day, but, you know, hopefully more and more people will become enticed to, to help us move this along. Yeah, and this is where I think we need to educate vascular technologists about this this new technique and get them on board with, you know, we, there's a lot of hemodynamics that you talked about, the preoperative and postoperative evaluation using ultrasound. It's like so powerful. <laughs> I want to say I'm going to, this love sprinkles. I love it. <laughs> We're going to do something with that. <laughs> it's like, it's so perfect because I think ultrasound does, uh, it provides a lot of, of love in many uh, different areas of uh, CLTI. And God, that's, that was perfect. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with you. And really this past year has been a mind-blowing experience uh, watching you as an operator and really stepping outside of the U.S. to watch cases and be a part of it. So it's really exciting. And I know we're getting short on time, but I really, you know, you've talked about the opportunities of vascular techs and the need for CBT and the value of us. But what do you think the future holds for ultrasound with AI emerging and maybe devices? Where do you see the future of that? It's a, it's a great question because it gives more value to the human component that before we called a, an error. <laughs> the, the AI is taking over static imaging. So you already have, I believe two weeks ago, you got FDA approval for uh, CT as a methodology to determine, to risk stratify patients with neurovascular conditions and pulmonary embolism situations. And so the reason why you put a patient in a scanner, you press click and it gets scanned and the images get interpreted by an AI. If anything, it's attacking the radiologist that's the one reading behind it. For AI to come to the point of human understanding and adaptability, it's going to be a while in the sense of the ultrasound component, because ultrasound is a very manual technique. And, and as long as we don't have that element figured out from a robotic standpoint, we're going to still require that human technique of dragging the probe through the essential areas. But also having these conversations and creating enough stimulus to our text to say, these are things I want to learn, these type of patients I want to recognize. You know, I would like you to not just read ultrasound arterial. I'd like you to take one minute and maybe understand what the patient is coming for. I would like you to look at the wound. I would like you to know a little bit about, are there diabetic, are there renal failure patient? Because, oh, why would this guy have an arterial extremity duplex and an AV9? AV9 is a fistula, I'll scan, it's a scans for fistula. So of course, now put two and two together. Yes, this guy's got a fistula, he's a diabetic, 
he's going to come with this bad wound on the toe. And you're going to scan now thinking that you're going to give me more understanding. And yes, we have to do all this work about timing and creative time and, and adding that to the process and creating incentives with modifiers and our new CPT codes for specific. But that human component of adaptability to be able to change on the go and or maybe even, I mean... Tell me how many times have you seen a patient that's, that they want an arterial duplex and, and you think what they need is a reflux scan for the veins. I mean, a billion, right? And so imagine how much more efficient it would be that these patients get sent for something and that you can modify the course of their care and add more information that's going to be very valuable for the practitioner that's providing care. Yeah, you know, and things are changing. So when I was trained, it was a proximal, mid, and distal. We followed a very stuck to the protocol. We didn't deviate at all. And now we have so much choice. So when we look at carotid endarterectomy versus TCAR, we can make that choice to help you in your decision making. Same with AV fistula. Is it going to be open or is it endo-AVF? And now you apply it to the lower extremity arterial. Is it bypass? Is it endo? Is it deep venous arterialization? I feel like techs need that latitude to then make some decisions and provide you way more information than we have done in the past. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) uh, I'm going to be talking about that in your annual meeting. I'm very honored and blessed that you invited me to talk on the topic, but it's a very important thing to make your professional group understand their value and their need for self-advocacy. Some people will reach out. Some people may not, you know, reach out. Yeah, well, I'm very excited. Um, You're going to be the keynote speaker for the Society for Vascular Ultrasound annual meeting. And I'm just, I'm so excited to to hear what you have to say and really to share with the group our value because we all know it, but we do need to hear it. And we need to be reminded that we do make a difference in the care and patients' that we see on a daily basis. And I, I love that you're such a supporter of ultrasound, but do you have any advice on how we can help build and collaborate for those listening out there, whether it be tech, physician, provider, how can we really build this collaborative relationship with vascular ultrasound techs? I think it, that the approach should be from multiple latitudes, right? I, I would like there to be an approach in the sense of creating value within the vascular interventionalists, be it surgeons or cardiologists or radiologists, in the fact that if you invest the time in lending that person and giving that person the bandwidth and the podium for them to express themselves and become that part of the team, you're going to get a lot of great information out of these people. And at the same time, you know, unfortunately not, you're not going to find that advocacy from the physicians all the time. But I think that there's a, a good chance that we can, you know, be self-advocates, right? And, you know, I've always been a fan of Brene Brown. Many of our conversations have in the past been about her. For those of you that know her, you're on the path. <laughs> you're on the path. For those of you that don't know her, you're not on the path. So get on with it. Uh, go home. Look at the Netflix special. It's amazing. But I love a part where where she says, you know, the first step is just showing up. It doesn't matter if you're going to conquer the world. It doesn't matter if you're going to do a fantastic job. It doesn't matter if you're going to get gold medals all the time. It starts with showing up. And that's where I think the techs need to step up is is show up, right? Is walk out of the dark room, is come to clinic. We're probably close by. Come to the physician and say, 
there's this odd thing that I'm seeing on the scan, and I think that you should come and take a look at it. And I will tell you that initially it may be a surprise because we don't normally see these hidden people in the dark rooms, right? But when they emerge, I would hope that we have the emotional intelligence to accept and understand that there may be some really good information coming our way. But we, you know, you never know if you don't step up and you don't show up. And, and I think that that's a, a first step for this, right? Yeah. And for the techs, it is humbling. There's a lot we don't know. We don't see the part of your world. And yeah, showing up, learning, and sometimes we're wrong on our duplex. And that is humbling in itself. But that's how we learn. And that's how we're better. Yeah. One thing that I've learned, you know, my wife is she's a nurse and involved in quality at Texas Children and the cardiology division. And I love one thing they have, uh, which they she works really hard on. It's a thing called performance rounds. And so instead of kind of that old concept of of M&M morbid mortality where everything is just daunting and horrible and bad cases. It's more of a systems. How can we work better as a system? How can we uh, you know, improve the patient's care? How can we identify administrative glitches or scientific or care glitches? And I think that you know, wherever it is that I'm gonna go professionally, I'm gonna try to implement performance rounds. And the good thing with performance rounds is you bring the administratives on you bring every part of the team from the medical assistants to the front desks, to the uh, techs, to the doctors, to the coordinators of the OR, and you say, hey, let's go, let's deep dive on a case and understand where we could have been better, where we should have been better. And in those moments is when I want those techs to step up. And if they don't have a performance round setting, for example, then step up in any way you can, because the moment that you start stepping up is the moment that that light's gonna shine and we're gonna be working much more together. And I have no doubt that hopefully in time and with, with somebody uh, like Jill on the front of all this, the light will be shined down on the right people and, and you will be a very critical part of the team as you already are, but it will be more recognized. Oh, well, thank you. I think uh, we all deserve to shine. And uh, I like that approach that Jenna's team is taking. Whatever you end up doing, building your Taj Mahal of the the amazing center that could be, I I certainly hope to be a part of it and have no doubt that you are going to change the lives of many people and create something extraordinary because you truly are a phenomenal vascular surgeon, uh, scientist, and and friend. So I I thank you for taking the time to be with us today and uh, look forward to a really bright future in the world of CLTI. And here's to innovation and passion and making change. And love sprinkles. And love sprinkles. Yes, 100%. (laughs) All right, Joe. Thank you very, very much for your time. And thank you to everybody at Backtable for putting this together for us. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.